Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Resuming debate. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Resuming Debate podcast. I'm your host, Garnet Jenis. So there's been a lot of discussion in the midst of this ongoing conservative leadership race about Bitcoin, about cryptocurrency. Uh, and I think for, for many people watching Canadian politics, this might be an issue that's taken you by surprise. Uh, for for I know there's some people that are, are really interested in this area, have been paying a lot of attention to it for a, a long time. And if if you're like me, it's sort of something that you've you might have missed in the midst of of all the other things that are that are going on in the world and capturing our our interest. So I thought it would be uh, really interesting to to bring on some folks who who have a, a real depth of knowledge and experience in this whole area of uh, of blockchain of crypto to kind of talk about about what it is at a at a basic level to provide some some guidance for those that are are, are uninitiated in this world, and then also uh, to share their thoughts in terms of what. Uh, what policymakers like myself and other members of parliament should be thinking about. Um, so uh, very pleased to have, uh, have have two people with, with expertise in this area. We have Colea Carrington, the CEO of Absolute Combustion, Executive Director of the Canadian Blockchain Consortium and co-founder of the Canadian Blockchain Association for Women. Colea, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on. And Dr. Henry Kim, uh, professor Kim is an associate professor and director for blockchain.lab at Schulich School of Business at York University. He's authored more than 30 publications on blockchain topics and advised several blockchain startups. Uh, Henry, thank you so much for joining us as well. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So, um, so, so uh, we'll get into the sort of deeper aspects of this, but, but, but why don't both of you start, you know, what's, what's the like clearest, simple explanation of, uh, so there's blockchain, there's crypto, and then there's Bitcoin. And, and from what I understand, each is kind of a subset of the other. So Kalea, why don't you start and say, you know, if, if you meet someone on an elevator and they, and they tell you, uh, they ask, what do you do? You know, I haven't heard of this before. How do you, how do you explain it? Um, I think the easiest way to explain it is a lot of people when they hear about blockchain, the immediate related to cryptocurrency. And when the white paper was released by the group or individual Satoshi Nakamoto, uh, blockchain was the protocol and Bitcoin was the product. So the two things do not technically have to be intertwined. You can have a digital ledger technology or a blockchain database. It's the simplest form of what it is, is a database where multiple different companies can view and agree on a similar set of data facts, right? So it's a great way of like sharing information across counterparties. And then you have the financial services side where you have different forms of cryptocurrencies. And even, even the term cryptocurrencies, crypto, it comes from a word cryptography because the cryptographic sequence uh, or SHA-256, it's part of the, uh, the protocol that is like blockchain and Bitcoin, right? Crypto for cryptography and then currency because they deem it as a form of money. Now, I would argue that 99.9% .9 of cryptocurrency out there should not be considered money outside of Bitcoin, but that's a debate for many people. Um, but yeah, so if you're looking at it from a financial services side, you're looking at that crypto aspect. If you're looking at it from an enterprise side, you're looking at a database. Okay, uh, so blockchain is kind of this innovation in database technology and cryptocurrency is information about who holds what money that exists on this database. Is that right? 
well, if, if you're looking at Bitcoin's protocols, like Bitcoin's blockchain is basically just a database of send and receive codes. So it's not going to say exactly who, but this 25 character, 26 character alphanumeric sequence wallet sent this much Bitcoin to this individual. The reason why um, Bitcoin's blockchain is so powerful is because if you're using it as a form of money or a sound money, it doesn't allow for for inflation. So from the time the Genesis block was mined, 21 million Bitcoins can only ever be produced. And when I say 21 million Bitcoins, you don't have to buy a whole Bitcoin. It can go into one one million of a Bitcoin. But what it does is it acts as a ledger to know exactly like where, who, what wallets are storing how much Bitcoin. You cannot manipulate it. You cannot hack it. You cannot double spend it. You cannot recreate it. It's just, it's a database of, yeah, that, that ledger. Now, for other cryptocurrencies, it, it just, it really depends on what they're going for. Some say, oh, our, our transaction times are, are quicker, um, but they have, this is how many cryptocurrency we have or how many tokens. We continuously release this many more tokens and you can mine these tokens, you can stake these tokens, do whatever you want with these tokens, but they're basically trying to act as a unit account for money. And that database is designed to, in, in a way, yes, tell you how much is available, what wallets are holding what, um, but that's, it is different from the database that you could potentially be using for that, for that enterprise application. Okay. Uh, Garnet, some, uh, Garnet, ahead, yeah. So let me just sort of, <clears throat> that was a very good description, Claire. Um, what I usually tell my, um, especially my corporate, uh, students or people that I advise, um, I say that, um, people are always interested in technology. So AI mimics, uses computers to mimic intelligence. Blockchain uses computers to mimic social trust, right? And so... Um, you know, because oftentimes, you know, if you think about the, the sort of evolution of business, uh, what happened is that institutions like banks and governments came about because I don't necessarily trust the person I'm going to do business with. I've never dealt with them before, but I trust my bank and they trust their banks. Uh, so banks as intermediaries sort of grease the wheel for commerce because I don't need to trust everybody in the world that I'm doing business with as long as I trust the bank and they act in a faithful way. And so intermediaries like financial institutions, again, have really greased the wheels of commerce. Having said that, what's actually happened is over time, some people have become disenchanted. And this is actually what the, the evolution of, of, of Bitcoin. So uh, uh, in, in that paper that Clea referred to, they conceptualized this plan where you could actually do without intermediaries. So Bitcoin was, for instance, was designed as a payment system without a financial institution. Okay, uh, and it's very, again, I don't necessarily need to go into it. I think Clay uh, spoke about many of the characteristics of it. Um, what I would simply say, though, is that if you, in this great system that you have, what you do is you don't have an intermediary, okay, in payment. But what you find whenever you want to have this kind of an application is that you do need somebody who acts as final decision maker. Like if you have a system where using technology, you can sort of send money to each other. There are some times when you need somebody to step up and say, this is final. These transactions, they're final, they're official. You don't necessarily want this person or this institution to do it all the time because then they're an intermediary, but you want someone to do this every once in a while. And the reason why it's called the cryptocurrency is that the whole design of blockchain, in particular Bitcoin, is done in such a way that cryptography allows for these people to be chosen ad hoc to get the system to run. But overall, in the long term, this is still a decentralized system, right? So the currency that's used, and so 
the, the, the reason for cryptocurrency is that if you have this system, if you have this payment system that functions very well without an intermediary, you still need to pay people, reward people to be able to you know, provide this sort of facilitation verification service. You develop a currency itself, which is used within the Bitcoin network. And the people that are actually called Bitcoin miners, I'm sure we'll have a discussion about that, are the ones that provide these ad hoc verification services and they're rewarded the currency. So it's this beautiful, elegant design. I mean, I'm a technologist for PhD in engineering. And I honestly, Bitcoin design is one of the most elegant pieces of engineering out there along with the World Wide Web. Um, and again, part of this is this amazing system that you have in place where the incentives are set and people are rewarded for contributing to this system without the system actually being governed by a central intermediary. Right. So um, this is this is really fascinating. I'm, I'm trying to sort of wrap my, my mind around it, but, but basically you've got this system uh, that because of, of the way it's engineered technologically, it doesn't require intermediaries in the same way. It, it's able mm -hmm, to, right. to, to verify, um, it has this sort of automatic verification built into the system. Um, and, and that system, that blockchain system is conceptually distinct from the idea of, of digital currency. You could have a digital currency that is uh, that does not exist on this platform. Um, right. uh, but so there's, there's sort of a few conceptually different concepts we're talking about here, uh, but they overlap uh, in, in Bitcoin and that Bitcoin is both, uh, you know, a, a system that exists within blockchain and it's also a, a digital, a digital currency. Um, uh, the, yeah. the, 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 I mean, you could think about even like making an online payment as digital currency. What is very right. different about blockchain is what's called an object-based digital currency in that everything else, actually, if you think about how you make payments interact or how you, if you're, if you're in China, you use WeChat, um, they all use an intermediary. Right, so it's basically you use a bank in one instance, you use a credit card. If you use Bitcoin, there is no intermediary. It looks and acts like cash, but it has the benefit, this amazing benefit that you don't need to go meet someone and physically hand in cash. You can actually, this is done digitally and it's transacted digitally and reconciled digitally and, and instantaneously. Yeah. So the value add in that sense of having a peer to peer um, payment rail. So just to give an example, so if anyone's kind of confused on this one. So when El Salvador said, hey, we're going to adopt this as a form of legal tender. Once they allowed for that, remittance makes up almost like 60% of the month of, of monies that go to, you know, third world countries. So people come here, better quality of life, they're able to make money, they send what they can back to their family. Yeah. So if you think about you're making $15 an hour, and then you're getting cut out with taxes, and then you go to a Western Union, and you're paying a fee to transact on that network that could take multiple days. And then you're paying a fee to convert into the local currency, which could take time. And then 60% plus of the El Salvador um, you know, community was unbanked. Now, when you allow for a peer-to-peer -peer payment rail, you are able to send your money instantaneously and confirmed within seconds. You can send them that Bitcoin. Western Union is actually positioned to lose close to $240 million based on that alone, but potentially in a single year. 
So people are getting more of their value and it's instantaneous payments, where if you wanna go even to a bank right now, so it also cuts out the bank. It allows for this level of self-sovereignty, this ownership of your own money that is not controlled specifically by any government or individual or centralized company. So now you're able to send your money. You want to send it to the Caymans. You want to send it to El Salvador. You want to send it to Africa, wherever you want to send it. You want to send a wire. You no longer have to go to the bank to have that verification process. You can do it instantaneously for a less price by transacting on the Bitcoin network. Yeah, let, let's dive into that specific mm -hmm. piece on on remittances because I'm uh, uh, one of my roles in Parliament is the is as the the point person in our party for international development and uh, part of the work we've done is just to identify the incredible uh, impact uh, of of remittances the the development impact of that and uh, many times you have uh, you have people coming to Canada working in Canada wanting to send back support to their families and actually um, you know they're, they're it's cheaper from a money transfer perspective to do it in the form of lump sums, but they, uh, but they're often not able to do that. They want to send back a little bit of money kind of as, as they earn it. So just incredible administrative costs involved. And, uh, and those, those remittances are, are actually extremely efficient in terms of their development impact because uh, they're going directly to people in, in need from family members. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, they're, they're, uh, they're being sent to those who need resources in a, in a way that that uh, official development channels uh, can, can sometimes sort of just, just require more oversight and administration and so forth. So, um, so this is this this is really powerful technology for for international development uh, in terms of growing those people people to connections, isn't it? Actually, and that's Sorry, what I was going to say is that, but that's actually very idiosyncratic to, to Canada. Remittance mm -hmm. is very efficient, for instance, in Africa using Isoko. Right. Right. And so, oddly enough, th th this is the paradox of this, is because we had such a good financial system, a good banking system, uh, remittance, uh, and, but we only have you know, four or five major banks, remittance is actually very inefficient from Canada to abroad. Africa to Africa, remittance is very efficient, or China to China if remittance is very efficient. So it's not necessarily, so Bitcoin is great, um, but I, I think it's, it's actually kind of a combination of Bitcoin plus sort of what we have in Canada. That's number one. Uh, and then two, and I think Kalea spoke about this, um, uh, remittance still actually uh, requires, because for instance, places like El Salvador, because so few people are unbanked, remittance actually would be great if I can just send some money to someone else with their computer, but uh, remittance in places like El Salvador still go through intermediary. The difference though, is that the system is new, it doesn't use Western Union and banks, and so therefore the intermediary doesn't charge as much, right? Mm. But I, I don't think, Bitcoin is, is, is wonderful in theory, as a, as a system for global remittance. But in reality, it has limited applications and there's also other, other competitors that are also efficient. I mean, it, it is a good use case, it, but in of itself doesn't solve the remittance problem. All right. Kalea, do you, do you agree with that? Do you have- In terms of that, uh, you know, I would have to say, I do not have the, the PhD in terms of being a technologist to have that full understanding. So I wouldn't uh, disagree uh, with, with Henry here, but I would say that the powerful tool that um, decentralized finance or Bitcoin has in some third world countries where the unbanked do not have access to traditional banking infrastructure. So yes, in some areas, bank, um, you know, remittance may be efficient, but if you're looking at people who are unbanked, who don't have access to bank accounts, who have to go through third party intermediaries who do charge higher fees and you'd be 
paying on on you know rails like in, in through cryptocurrency there is developments happening on that side and there is it's a very fat, powerful tool to be able to allow people to transact in that peer-to-peer -peer way without specifically having an intermediary there's you know parts in india where a lot of india is also unbanked and where people want to send remittance payments back there so if you have a form of decentralized finance or currency where more people have access to a cell phone than they have access to running water which is interesting if you have a cell phone and you're able to connect to the internet and again that's a whole infrastructure problem there as well if you if you don't if you're not able to connect through there so you know it doesn't solve the world's problems but it is that ability for people to be able to expedite payments to be able to send more of their value to the family members in need and cut out those intermediaries so it, i'm not saying it's a complete solution but from um, places i've seen it is a powerful tool another example of this outside of remittance would be there are freedom fighters in areas of nigeria who are trying to fight against a a more totalitarian government. And the way the government controls the people is through their bank accounts. They'll freeze their assets. They'll disallow them from being able to like pay their bills, deposit money into their you know, financial institutions. And just because they disagree with the regime, they are no longer allowed access to what they need to be able to survive in a modern day world. Now being able to transact through cryptocurrency or Bitcoin, they can pay their bills, they can feed their children, they can, you know, buy the essentials and things that they need. So it's, it's an opportunity for people to still be able to participate financially, even in government regimes where it's not favorable towards a dissenting view. Yeah, so and I think um, that's, that's another good uh, jumping off point, uh, which is, I, I think one of the things that's very attractive just to some people about this whole space is, is, uh, uh, the idea of of uh, less government potential control over their over their financial lives. The trade off there, I guess, is people that are concerned about uh, about crime. And from from what I've heard, I've heard uh, said by advocates for for this whole whole area, is that they say actually there's more potential to track transactions, uh, which allows you to fight crime. But on the other hand, you're saying that um, that uh, people are able to act more independently. So aren't, aren't those two things at odds with each other? Like, is it more independence or more ability to track? And, and how do those so, go? Ahead. Go ahead, go ahead. Maybe so so in, in, in terms of consumer protection is absolutely key. And some of the things that we do at the consortium is bringing in law enforcement, bringing in banks, bringing in the technology service providers to be able to have these like educated conversations. The on-chain analysis trackability of these transactions is actually even stronger than in traditional fiat currency systems. You send a wire, you might be able to track it through like one of its jumps, but you might lose it after that. Where on Bitcoin, I can track the entire transaction. And even if it does go through something like a coin join or a swap, and they try to disperse the transactions, you can still track and you can be able to say, okay, this is a bad actor. We wanna make sure that this bad actor is not able to access a traditional payment rail and get their money out within fiat currency. So there is a lot of opportunities to be able to have that level of tracking. Now, no, you do not want to you know, give money to someone dealing in the negative side of things. But from a lot of the people I've spoken to that are also in that financial crimes risk investigation unit, cash 
is the number one use for money laundering and illicit activities. It has way less tracking potential. A criminal would have to be not very intelligent to use cryptocurrency based on the ability to track the entire tra like transaction chain to where you put it with the ability to potentially find out who you are behind that hidden address. You're literally putting your illicit activities on a permanent ledger. So mm -hmm. it, it's, not, it's, it's not used as common, it's not used as often, but where it comes like to me personally in terms of like government intervention, it's not that we want the, the government, oh, step back. It's that, you know, hello, Inflating our money system has very negative consequences. When you have known scarcity, and Bitcoin is the only form of money the world has ever seen with actual known scarcity, a full unit of account. And you cannot inflate that because every time you inflate the currency, you increase more money, you devalue a currency. So now we have billions of dollars being introduced by governments around the world. You're seeing it in places like Venezuela. The more money they introduce, the more stabilization they made in the economy. People now have to take their money, spend it immediately to be able to buy a good. You have more money chasing fewer goods because there's less production happening. And it impacts society on an exponential level. So if government steps back and stops introducing more and more and more money, based on a Keynesian economic theory that the more you introduce, the more you stimulate the economy, we'd actually have a more stable economy, we'd have less debt, <laughs> and we'd have a higher quality of life based on that. And that's another thing that Bitcoin is able to provide, sound money based on Austrian economic principles secured by, you know, a cryptographic sequence that's military grade. Uh, so, so, so Henry, yeah, so, you, yeah. Let me qualify the crime, you those. the crime issue and, yeah. and then also the inflation piece. Yeah, sure, sure. So the crime issue and and, and Colet is very, absolutely right. The one thing though is that, and this is one of the designs of Bitcoin, a lot of blockchains. It's what's called pseudo pseudo anonymous. So you know everything about that transaction, but you do not know the ID of the transactor. Now, mm -hmm. um, so what happens though is that if you do it on large scale, like if you you know people worried about. Uh, Russian oligarchs actually uh, spending Bitcoin. Uh, if you do it at a very large scale, law enforcement's actually, because is is actually got a lot of um, eyes on it. So it actually, what's happening in Ukraine and, and the oligarchs haven't been able to move the money around as much because so many eyes are on it. Um, having said that, if you're a smaller crime uh, where, where, where NSA can't, isn't necessarily worthwhile looking at everything or police aren't looking at it, it actually be, it actually, gives you the ability to sort of be fraudulent the same way the cash transactions are. So on one hand, the incredible transactions are really good. On the other hand, if you're committing some crimes, like doing a phishing attack, for instance, um, you can actually, it, it is more convenient. So it kind of, yes and no. So it, it, it is sort of subtle size, but as, as with everything else in Bitcoin, everything is subtle and, and because it's so new. So uh, I, I, with what with, with Kalea said, at one point I actually agreed with her, but the evidence in the last, you know, what's happening with the U.S. has shown that at, right now, it may change. Right now, Bitcoin is not an inflation hedge. In fact, it's just completely the opposite. Uh, Bitcoin has had an incredible correlation with U.S. tech, tech stocks. So as the U.S. Fed have actually increased in, uh, the, the, the fund, uh, interest rates, uh, it's gone down precipitously, which we'll maybe talk about later on. And that's not to say that in the long run, it won't, right? What, what that's to say is that there's a lot of nuances to this and people don't know. Um, frankly, one of the things that I've been sort of telling people, oftentimes you hear the argument that you hold the Bitcoin, I think this is Kalea saying, as a store of value. You know, it, it, you have it, 
it, it's, it's like gold. It has a certain value in it itself. And if people inflate Canadian dollar, US dollars, it doesn't inherently change the value of that asset. So it's called the store of value. More and more, and I'm saying this sort of semi-facetiously because it sounds really good, it's not a store of value, it's a story of value. It's so new, it's not quite understood. There are a lot of people claiming things uh, that to me, it's not a proven store of value, it's a story that people think there's a cogent, possibly a good story of being a great place for remittance, store of value for, as an inflation hedge. We don't know just yet. I have my thoughts about where these things go. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a story of value. But because people are looking for yield, because it's had some incredible returns, because it's technology and people have this great trust in technology, because the five of the biggest companies in the world are all tech companies, people are willing to buy into the story of value of Bitcoin and of cryptocurrencies and blockchain-based systems. Right. Okay, so let me, and, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Let me let me um, comment on what I what I think I'm hearing between the two of you on the inflation issue, and then maybe go back to Kolea to respond, and we can have some more more back and forth on the issue of inflation because that's that's been a big part of the Canadian political conversation, right? Is the is is what is there? Are, there are so many concerns about inflation, about the impact that's having on people's costs of living, and uh, I think a lot of people they they want to insulate their assets from inflation, and for some people that means um, you know, buying things like precious metals that are, yeah. uh, uh, that are kind of, uh, maybe a, a, a longer running, uh, tool for not, not having your, your assets in, uh, in, uh, in, in things that are, are like just in, in currency, but then, uh, there's this, this, this alternative. So it seems to me from, from what I'm learning, just from listening to you both is that, um, that something like Bitcoin has huge potential. Uh, because it's it's finite because you can't uh, produce more of it. At the same time, like like the Canadian dollars that I use, uh, its its value is dependent. Its its true value is dependent on whether people want it and whether people use it. Right? Uh, if Bitcoin is is an invented thing that is is finite in its existence, so it it um, it could be valuable if people use it. And people see it as valuable, and they and they and they buy into it. Uh, but but just because there's this incredible piece of technology out there that has the potential to to do certain things, doesn't mean it'll catch on. Uh, Kalea, what, am I am I wrong or or am I close? Um. So. The, so let's just talk about what is money. The principles of money. Money needs to yeah. serve as a medium of exchange, as a store of value and as a unit of account. And Bitcoin provides all three of those things. So when I talk about it from an inflationary perspective, let's look at how you store your value. <clears throat> so your most precious asset is your time. You store your time in terms of work. So you go to work, you, you put your, you know, your, your hours in and you receive for that time a remuneration in money, in whatever dollar currency that you're currently situated in. And then you're, you're incentivized to save that money for the long term, right? You want to make sure that you have money towards your retirement, right? You want to make your make, make sure that you're able to have a quality of life from that time that you've put in in your younger years to enjoy that quality of life in your older years. Now let's talk about how inflation impacts that. Let's talk about when your money, what $20 could purchase you back in the 1950s versus today the value of the US dollar has gone down almost 90% within 50 years. 
people no longer are able to trust that they're able to store their time in money and, and be able to actually have a quality of life long-term. In terms of Bitcoin, because of the fact that you have a known scarcity to this asset, and yes, I appreciate the volatility, right? It's, it's a new asset class, if you want to call it that, but it follows the Austrian economic principles of money. It acts as a store of value. It also acts as a unit of account, and it's a medium of exchange. We no longer need to be in the barter and trade system. You can't exactly exchange a cow for three chickens. You have to find a, a medium to provide fair value exchange, which is the principle of money. Our current fiat system provides all three of those with the unfortunate aspect of a consistent inflation to the money supply. So if we look at uh, the average housing cost has gone up by $800,000. It used to be $400,000. Is a house more valuable? No, it costs more money. Why? Because there's more money introduced into the economy, chasing fewer and fewer goods, raising the cost of those goods. That is inflation. So it's not a story. It is a store of value, in my, in, in my opinion, based on studying a lot of uh, economics textbooks from Murray M. Rothbard and others. And the reason why you're seeing some of the wealthiest men on the planet start pouring their wealth into Bitcoin as that unit of account store of value, unit of exchange, is because they realize if we keep going at the rates of inflation, we are going to collapse our financial system as many other countries have. If we have an 85 times debt to GDP rate, which is worse than France, which is worse than Greece, which is worse than many other countries who have hit economic collapse, we cannot assume that continuously introducing more money and leveraging and adding more and more debt is somehow going to stabilize the economy. At some point, we are going to end up having a very negative impact towards that. And yes, Bitcoin can be tied. We're, we're seeing, okay, there's, there's concern about inflation, stock markets are going up, stock markets are going down, you're seeing Bitcoin, you know, react to the market. Absolutely, we've seen, you know, Facebook drop a billion dollars in a day. It's just how stock markets work. But if you look at historically, since it came out in 2009, it was had absolutely no value. Globally speaking, it has now created billions and trillions of dollars in value. We have 147 million Bitcoin users today. In and, and to equate that, in 1997, you had 140 million internet users. Today, in 2007, I think you had 3.6 billion. We're only seeing 4% of the global economy actually participating in this market right now. That's a very small number to hit a market cap of trillions. Once you see like supply and demand ratio, once you see more and more of the world's population try and get into this asset class, you are going to see it raise in value. So long-term, it is not, it is continuously going up in value. Short-term, if you're looking to leverage it or trade it, I, I don't agree with that. You're, you're gonna have, you know, you're gonna get wrecked or you're gonna have impacts in the market, but long-term it is going to create, you know, value, more value than I see with our traditional currency system with fiat. So, so Garnet, I, this one, on this point, I do have to disagree because I see this again with my thesis of story of value, because Kalea actually says 2009, you know what happened in 2009? In fact, Bitcoin was, the white paper was released a month after the crisis. Yeah, 2000, 2008, you're right, 2008 uh, after the uh, Lehman Brothers. There has been an incredible expansion in the money supply. Basically 2008 until this November was when the US Fed had pumped in trillions of dollars. I believe, and I will say this, and, and I think that this is important. I believe it's a story of value. I believe what this is happening because most of the rationale, so that there's two aspects of it. 
most of what a lot, a lot of arguments and Kalea, I think sort of echoed a lot of the arguments I've heard is that it's worthwhile because it's made a lot of money, right? It's made a lot of money because there's been a lot of access liquidity because it's, it's looked like a great shiny coin. I mean, that's the bottom line. It's a shiny coin with a story of use cases, which some may be fulfilled. Again, uh, I still think there's a, a story of value of, uh, a, a digital gold aspect to it, but whether that exists or not, there is a cogent story to behold. There is a, a flashy sign that has gone up a lot of money, right? And so it's very attractive, but just because it's flashy and just because there's a potential use case down the road does not mean that in and of itself is this incredible asset class for a long run. It doesn't have to be. It, it really, okay. and this, that's what it's simply what I would say is that it doesn't have to be. Is there an opportunity to make money? Do you understand the story? Do you understand the dynamics? One of the, I was on, um, as, it, as it happens uh, today, actually, I was interviewed by the CBC and I told him just the opposite of what Clea said. When the US stops actually raising interest rates, right? When the US is when you should buy Bitcoin. I would, in fact, I would actually, this is exactly what I'm gonna do, right? So not as an inflation hedge, but when they stop printing money, which means there'll be more liquidity and people will look for investments. And then the eyes will go to Bitcoin as one thing that could go triple or quadruple in a way that Apple stock or Tesla stock will not. And that's what I'm going to do because I understand it because that's a dynamic, but that's me and I understand it, but I don't want people to be honest. And this is why I do disagree with Kalea. I don't want retirees. I don't want people who have, have a bit uh, some semblance of understanding putting all their money in something which they do not understand. Mm -hmm. Right. And then that's and so if you understand that it's a story stock, that it's somewhere between Tesla, it's maybe not as concrete a story as Tesla, but it's not a meme stock. It's somewhere along that spectrum. So if you want to dabble with a little bit of money, that's fine. But please, please, please do not put now. I mean, I think it was great if you could have done it in the past. Please, please, please do not put all your retirement savings in Bitcoin. So uh, I'll go back to Kalea here. Um, I, I don't know if your if your opinions are that far apart on on some of the issues. In that, I guess what what I'm getting out of this is that uh, Bitcoin is this new technology uh, that can do all these things that um, that other forms of money can't do as well. That that's sort of both with both of your you with, with caveats. With caveats. Yeah. that's the problem, right? It's every so, every use case has a caveat. Okay. Uh, so when we look to the future. Um, you know, on the one hand, Kole is saying it, it's got all these all these uh, aspects to it, and a small number of people are using it right now. That's only going to grow. And Henry, what you're saying is, we don't know. Maybe, but maybe not. Um, well, I, I, what I think is that I think that it will, in the long run, I, I do believe this that it could be in place of digital gold. That is, people right now there's trillions of dollars invested in gold, which yeah. actually is as if you, if, if you use rationale to justify gold, you can justify Bitcoin. And if you're like Warren Buffett and you say, I don't own gold, you use that same logic, you wouldn't own Bitcoin. So it's, it shares a lot of characteristics with Bitcoin or rather gold and Bitcoin share a lot of characteristics. So I think that's an opportunity there. And so I, I would say, yeah, that, that's, that's fine. Every other use case, in my opinion, uh, will not come to pass simply because all the use cases that I think in the long run are useful, remittance, you know, El Salvador using it as fiat funds. It's not a first world. They're solving not first world problems, right? We live in a country with one of the best financial systems in the world in Canada. We don't have 
in, in, in large scale these types of problems that exist elsewhere. So therefore, the reason, and on top of this, that's number one. Um, and I think secondly, um, it can't be used as medium exchange or a comp because it actually conflicts with fiat currency. The problem with that is that our government, our politicians, right? Fiat currency represents sovereignty. It represents financial stability. It is actually a big part of national identity. You know, Canada as a nation of 30 million people has one of the most uh, in-demand currencies. So that's Canada. So bottom line is we just don't have in the long run a need to use Bitcoin as reserve currency or a medium of exchange. Okay, so Kule, I want to give it back to you to respond to to any of those points, and then I have another question I want to ask you and, and follow up. Um, I I think we're taking the the opposition. I definitely strongly disagree with a lot of the points that were made there. I look at it from an economics point perspective as opposed to a technologist perspective. One, if I was looking at Bitcoin in the same aspect that I would look at an Apple or a Tesla stock, if I think of a stock, I don't think of a stock as money. I think as it as an investment vehicle for some point in the future, not a way to store the value in my time and make sure I receive fair or increased value in the future. Um, yes, Canada does have a well done financial infrastructure. Our current fiat payment rails are effective, but the inflation that's happening right now is extremely concerning. And people who store their value in fiat currency moving forward are likely going to have the same issue the Venezuelan people, Zimbabwe people, and every other country in the world who's had hyperinflated currency to the point of economic collapse are going to suffer. And if there's no alternative medium of exchange or currency to port your value into, there's going to be an issue. There's a reason why the US dollar is like a global reserve currency right now is because countries use it to stabilize the value of their own currency. We do not have a, outside of like gross domestic product or GDP, the value of our fiat currency system is pretty much based on whatever the, the value that the government feels that it currently has. And if they continue to inflate that money supply, the value is going to decrease. So. Bitcoin absolutely is money and it is sound money and it is an opportunity for people to be able to protect their wealth and their money long term. But, but Clay, I, Clay, totally... I, I, do, I, I do have okay. to ask, though, uh, uh, why is it not behaving like an inflation edge right now? So when you have so anything that comes out is new. So, again, like this is you, you have like we could go into the entire history of money. And this is one of my more favorite topics. We can go into it. But you have a technology that's come out, a protocol and a product, Bitcoin, that, that did come out. And there's a reason it came out during the, the 2008-2009 financial crisis to basically be an option for people to not have to participate in the fiat currency system as based on what happened to them there. But as it is new and people are very speculative, you're going to see the market move. Now, 76% of Bitcoin is stored offline. You're seeing the movement in a market to a small percentage of what's actually available on the market. It's not, you know, all 18 million Bitcoin are currently going up and down in value, like going all over the place. It's a small trade percentage that sits on an exchange that is arbitraged and people are going to, of course, attempt to manipulate it. At some point, since it's only 12 years old, it will end up having 
stronger stability, but people speculate, people get nervous and concerned. They don't do their research before they get into this. They don't even, they don't understand their current monetary system to understand even how Bitcoin is money. Economics is not taught in our schools, right? So people get in, they don't know what they're investing in. They see it go up, they get excited, they see it go down. They're like, oh, I don't wanna be a part of this anymore. And they don't really understand what it is, why it was created, the purpose and the value for it. And why you would want to hold it long-term. It's not a short-term like, oh, I'm just gonna have this for a week and hopefully I make some money off of it. You're gonna store this value for 10, 15 years. Ideally, you're gonna store it to the point where it's now just used as you know, a, a regular currency as opposed to using your fiat. Okay, so uh, th this is a really good good discussion. I don't, I don't think we're gonna, uh, I don't think we're, we're going to totally all disagree, uh, but I think it's it gives people a really good sense of sort of the contours of the debate around inflation. I want to move from some of the economic questions just to, to, to the political questions. It's interesting that this issue has, uh, in 2022 in Canada, become part of the political conversation. I think there are probably some reasons why people who are more skeptical about uh, about government, concerned about government overreach uh, and abuse of power, are are more attracted to this, um, and uh, you know historically there's been a lot of trust in our banking system, but I think uh, you know at the same time we had the use of the Emergencies Act under mm -hmm. uh, under uh, circumstances that that uh, that many people were quite critical of, and part of that was the the freezing of people's uh, people's uh, bank accounts. Uh, so, uh, Kulea, maybe uh, um, start with you on this question uh, in terms of of the the circumstances around trust in our institutions that are maybe uh that are maybe driving some people to say uh, i don't have the same trust in uh in fiat currency or in the banking system that i once did uh, and i'm looking for alternatives um okay so when when the emergency measures act came out and they said we'll freeze your bank accounts we'll freeze the bank accounts of your family members who potentially participated in something like this. And they created, they created basically a run on the banks. A lot of the, a lot of banks ended up having cash issues. They would only hand out a small portion of cash they currently have on, on reserve out to people. And cause it was like, okay, if, if I can't pay my mortgage, if I can't do these things, if I can't buy what I need, how am I supposed to, how am I supposed to trust if the government has that level of authority to be able to go in and freeze accounts without doing like due diligence or just cause or, you know, actual criminal charges being laid that creates zero trust in government or the banking system. But the banking system has been losing its trust for a long time anyway. So when the, the quantitative easing that happens at banks is heavily concerning. When the banks only have to hold 5% of cash reserves on hand at any given time, and they have 95% of that loaned out in debt, the banks are insolvent. At all times, the banks are insolvent and they're allowed to maintain this egregious amount of debt float. Every time someone goes to, to purchase a home, the bank just goes, okay, here's more money, ones and zeros. Right. It's not that the bank has that cash and then reserves it for that person's home. The bank just goes, here's another line item. Here's another issuance of debt. And that person now has to pay off that debt to the bank. The bank technically just owns your home. But now the banks are being able to go, well, we can now freeze your accounts. We can now stop you from participating in in society. And we do that based on 
um, a fringe minority with dissenting views, right? We didn't like what you had to say. So now based on that, we are no longer going to give you access to this. For that reason alone, a lot of people absolutely wanted to step into cryptocurrency because it's like, well, it's, it is not appropriate for government to have that level of power and overreach based on what is effectively a peaceful protest of people who are tired of their livelihoods being stripped from them because a pandemic had been so politicized that they weren't even recognizing how hard it was for people. For every what? They say 1% of inflation, 2% increase in suicides. The lockdowns, the closures, people not being able to, to pay for what they need for their families, people not, the mental health issues, the domestic abuse, everything that came out of it because of a, I understand, a, a, a pandemic that was, you know, killing what point, point, th- point less than 3% of, 0.03%, you had a very high, high survival rate. People want their lives, people want their freedoms, people want to know that they are going to be able to earn a wage and that wage is going to be able to take care of their families. And we are watching a government strip that away and politicize issues they have no right to politicize and then wonder why people are stepping into a decentralized finance, an alternative form of currency that makes them feel safer than what the government is currently offering to them. So I want to go to Henry on, on this, but just one more huh? question quickly for you, uh, Kalea. Is it is it fair to say that the people that um, um, that the people that are uh, speaking to you about getting into this space tend to come from a, a certain side of the political spectrum in terms of their perspectives on things like like lockdowns and the pandemic? Or are you seeing people that uh, no. you know voted liberal? No. Uh, we're against the protests, say, but but also buying into the crypto uh, space. No, in our consortium, like we work with banks, we work with major law firms, we work with technology service providers. Like we don't actually um, work with any token holders, right? Like we okay. don't have cryptocurrency companies as members. We don't have NFT companies, producers as members. We have groups like like Royal Bank and, and BLG and, and trust companies. Like we are we are that interface to help educate from an economics um, and and a, uh, sorry, an enterprise level understanding of of this technology and what it could mean for business. We don't take, I'm I'm giving you my personal opinions. I'm not giving you the, the stance specifically there, but from the groups that I speak to, it comes from all political walks of life. It comes from all levels of of corporate organizations that are curious, like why would the government take this position? And I do not understand why, you know, like this is impacting, how is this impacting on a personal level? How is this impacting, you know, my staff and my employees? Like I saw dear friends who owned restaurants just like pulling out their hair going, I, I can't keep my staff. I have to keep letting them go. I have to keep shutting down. I, I like my supply chain, I don't know how to get the groceries that I need. And will I be able to open back up? And will I be able to survive as a business? Right. These aren't people that are liberal facing or NDP facing or, or conservative facing. These are just people who want an opportunity to have to live in a free country and create economic prosperity for themselves that in the last two years have lost their trust in being able to do so. Mm-hmm. All right, uh, Henry, your reaction to. OK, so to so question. the one thing I do agree with there is that there is no. Um, Look, if you're interested in Bitcoin to make money, it doesn't matter if you're left or right or liberal. Okay. So, so I think those people that are interested in making money and understand it, I think they come from all walks of life. Uh, I think 
the people that are really willing to use it as medium, like to, to pay, make payments and medium and really willing to use it, that might be more on the conservative based upon what they said. I, I don't necessarily want to get into that. I mean, it's a very nuanced issue. Um, what I would simply say is that if you're in Canada, believe it or not, um, it's actually not that, like it doesn't give you all that privacy because I read somewhere that 87% of Bitcoins that are that are held, right, um, are actually held through uh regulated exchanges. So if you want, if I, if I want to go and buy Bitcoins from Coinbase or, or uh, CoinSmart, whatever, there's a whole bunch in Canada, I actually have to register. So I lose my, so what, whatever Trudeau, what, what Trudeau did just there, he can do with my Bitcoins because my Bitcoins go through a registered service that knows who I am. So tech practically, um, it actually, <laughs> you don't actually have that much privacy in Canada, other places you do. So I, I think, again, I, I hearken back to the same story. It has, like in places like Argentina and El Salvador, uh, Central, Central African Republic, there is a valid use case because the government is not to be trusted, because the money that they have is not to be trusted. We're not there. I tell all my students, I've had so many students, I talk about blockchain, I, I, I boil it down very simply. You use blockchain when one, you're not happy with the intermediary or two, you wish an intermediary existed, but it doesn't. When I talk about enterprise blockchain, which is what Clay was talking about, I always say that. The issue with blockchain, if you're in Canada or the United States, it, does, it solves a problem you really don't have. Other places it does, and I, 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 I understand that, but we don't have that problem in Canada. That's number but, but, one. But this, this, yeah. this is just the point, right? It, yeah. Some people, some people uh, seem to think we do have that problem, and I'm, I'm not saying they're right. But right, I'm and I, and I, I really people, honestly yeah. believe that's a minority. Right. Number one, I think it's a minority. Number one, and then two, even for those people that think it's a problem, if they have Bitcoin operationally, they actually can't get the benefit of libertarian benefits that Clay spoke with because most of those people are in exchanges and people know exactly who they are. Okay, Kalea, what's your reaction to that? Um, I would disagree with the number. Um, yes, a lot of people who are not uh, aware from the technical perspective of how to hold it in cold storage, you know, will we'll hold a small amount online. But that, again, people. the amount... Uh, yeah. So I mean, yeah, yeah. Most people have it. So decentralized wallets, that's one of the areas where like we work with the, like we engage and talk with the Securities Commission and different regulatory bodies and decentralized wallets are one of the areas where the reason why they've targeted exchanges, the reason why we create that regulation. So of course, as a consumer trust, be able to figure out who, who does have access to it because you need to regulate the space to create that consumer confidence and being able to participate in Same as you wanna participate in the stock market. If you wanna look at cryptocurrency, and I do mean this outside of Bitcoin, if you wanna participate in cryptocurrency, you should do so in a highly regulated manner. And these companies should be held accountable to the same regulatory standards that any other IPO would have to go through to be able to release a product onto the market because I mean a lot of people have ended up getting completely wrecked by the projects that really shouldn't have come out that was highly highly speculative but in terms of in terms of people being able to have anonymity like you can go right now and go on a non-custodial brokerage you can purchase your Bitcoin, store it in a decentralized wallet that you can hold on your phone, not highly recommended, but you can do so. And if anything happens to that exchange, like there, there's no, there's still a, the non-custodial brokerage still has that KYC, that process, but the government doesn't get access to who's done what unless they have like a warrant or there's actually a reason for it, right? 
Um, so there's still all the ones that you hear about Coinbase, Crypto.com, everything that you read in the newspaper, everything that you see on TV, isn't that. Well, so most, unfortunately, most you have mainstream access, right? media with a right. lack of understanding of what's happening in the market. And if you're trusting the mainstream media to actually give you an educated understanding of what's going on and you're not participating currently yourself to get that understanding, then, yeah, you're going to get a very skewed view of what's going on. Not your keys, not your coin is a very important statement that comes in the Bitcoin community. And if you're not willing to learn how to store and how to have that self-sovereignty, that ownership of it, do not participate because exchanges have a very high chance of getting hacked and that's where people go oh my god i lost all my funding i don't trust the crypto market anymore so I, 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 you're, I, you're better I, right i agree with you but then it sort of runs counter to the issue of educating people and and trying to get the masses when they have to go through so many hoops to ensure the privacy i mean clay i can do that but most people that are interested many people that are listening to the podcast they aren't Right. And so what, what I'm saying is that, yes, that possibility, the libertarian possibility exists for the vast majority of people that are interested in Bitcoin and, at, at, a, at a certain level, at a, at a novice level, they're not going to do that. Right? And that's the difficulty. Okay. Well, let me, that, let me... I appreciate that. Absolutely. Sorry. But it's like we are still very early in the technology. It, it, it's still at the point where it needs to develop out that infrastructure to create that simplicity so people can transact with it and be able to store it offline in, in a simple step process. So we're, we're not quite there yet, but I mean, it's done incredible for the industry that it's created within only 12 years. Yeah. So let me let me ask another political question. And uh, this has been a great conversation. We're probably winding to the end of where we want to go time-wise. I'm so grateful for both of you being on here and 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 the, the different perspectives and the passion of the exchange. So um, as, as, a, as a politician, I look back the last few elections, there hasn't been much discussion of crypto. And both of you are telling me, actually, there's there's folks on, on all sides of the traditional political divide that are looking at crypto, that are making investments. Maybe there's slight variations in the way people use it. It seems to me, given the kind of increase in this discussion at the political level and some of the other events that have happened this year, uh, that this might end up being a little bit of a differentiator next time, that, that people will be looking for politicians to take positions with respect to cryptocurrency, and that it might be an issue uh, that, that moves voters, where people who have traditionally been on one side, say, because of a position on crypto one way or the other, uh, they're looking at, at, uh, at another party. Do you see there being a likelihood that this will be, will be the sort of thing that will be addressed in the next election, either either positively or or you know as as a basis for criticizing others, and uh, do you think it will be the sort of thing that that shapes some degree of realignment where people are changing their 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 traditional voting patterns because of what may be offered on crypto? So, what, Henry? Why don't you go first on this one, and then Nicole? I think crypto could be used as a metaphor, as a very convenient, very lucrative, very shiny metaphor for libertarian thinking. Right. And, and I think I suspect politicians, you know, appreciate that I'm not a politician myself. And that would be could be used that way, again, as a metaphor. Practically, um, I think one thing where it does make a difference and you see it in the States, and I think you might see it in Canada. Alberta, for instance, is very crypto friendly. Primarily, why? Because Alberta has the means to build an economy around Bitcoin mining. Right, they've got so so Alberta has done a great job, and it actually has some. I, I think some of the best. And keep in mind, I'm a, a crypto positive person. I like crypto. I like holding it. And Alberta has some of the best, some of the most uh, investor friendly regulations about owning crypto. Um, 
but I think that's that's the issue there. That's an economic. That's a very practical economic value issue with respect to Bitcoin mining, right? So, um, in sum, what I would say is that if you choose to use it as a nice simple metaphor to say that I support libertarian thinking, then you're going to be able to sort of affect the people that are more leaning that way, right? Beyond that, and I think if you have the messaging that supports our economy in places like Alberta, I think that has political ramifications, right? Uh, but for the most part, I, I think if it has any leaning left or right, it's gonna be, there's, you know, you are happy or unhappy with Justin Trudeau, what Justin Trudeau did. You're happy or unhappy with privacy and libertarian um, sort of associations with that. You may just use Bitcoin as a nice, nice catchphrase, just to, as a simple way to highlight that. Okay, interesting. So it's kind of a, a link to a bunch of other uh, I, I think that's how people are using it. Okay. You, it the late, latest debate, the conservative debate, one of your candidates suggests that, right? I, okay. And the ideas that they had were impractical, but it, it sort of sends a nice message for people who want to hear that message. Kalea, what's your take on the on the possible relevance of this issue in a subsequent election and how voters might change their, their behavior based on it? Well, so, I mean, there, there are definitely points. Uh, with with Henry that I, I definitely agree with it it is an opportunity to discuss that more libertarian side and when you're able to shift that conversation and go you know supporting jobs I support jobs I support you know freedom I support you know government pulling back and not being as involved I you know there I don't I don't consider it like a libertarian view specifically it's more of like we have a very complex system. And when few individuals are trying to manage and govern a highly complex system, there is going to be gaps. And when the gaps get quite large and become very obvious and start negatively impacting human lives, human, like people are gonna go, okay, I, I would appreciate if the government did not have you know, purview or say over this, right? That's kind of where you're seeing it. So like in Alberta, I can say it just from being here. One, it is incredible the opportunity we have. We could bring in at minimum 20% of the global hash rate. We can sell our energy on the internet. We're currently not able to take it off on a boat. We're not able to really get it out through a pipeline. We can sell vast resources through the internet. And it's not just through Bitcoin mining. It's literally through supporting things like data centers. Thanks to things like the metaverse, we're going to have to 3X our capacity for data centers moving forward because people want to be involved in augmented reality. So supporting that, you can do that in Quebec. You can do that in Saskatchewan. You can do that in Manitoba, right? So supporting our, our broader technology ecosystem, I think is going to be very good messaging. I, I'm seeing that the conservative government is taking a very positive and strong position towards the technology, the blockchain, the, the cryptocurrency sector. And I do believe that people who, you know, align with that message could lean from one side to the other. In Alberta, I'm definitely seeing like a massive influx of companies setting up here, moving here, building their businesses here, hiring here, uh, engaging with our energy company, engaging with our governments, you know, uh, our Alberta Securities Commission is, is friendly, they're, they're willing to work with. I think if other provinces started looking at this technology, not as something to be feared, but as something to learn and educate themselves on and have a better understanding, it would be very beneficial from a federal level. I, I do agree with that. It's more of that, that thinking like people want to have some level of assurance that the last two years will not happen again. How do we create that level of, you know, 
safety and like, can I start a business? Can I start a restaurant? Do I want to start a restaurant? Maybe I don't because it's probably going to get shut down. Will I be able to travel? Can I be in the travel industry? Like, I mean, there's, there's so much uncertainty that got created due to a hyper-politicized situation that didn't have to happen the way that it did. That I think that's what's going to lean people more because the freedom message is coming out and the people who don't want to experience that again are going to go, I want to go to this side of the fence because this side of the fence means universal basic income and I might only receive this much money per month for God knows how long, right? That's more, more how I see it. If they want to pick up the Bitcoin narrative, I mean, great, yep. sound money, but again, you're picking up the Bitcoin narrative as a hedge, uh, discussing inflation. It's like, yeah. and you don't even need to pick up the Bitcoin me- message to discuss, stop inflating our money supply. 80% of Canada's money has come out since this pandemic and only 200 of those billion have been spent on COVID. So like, where's the money going? Why are we doing it? People, I don't want my children's 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 children to have to pay off government debt that there was no reason to have in the first place. So mm-hmm. you don't need blockchain to have this message. You do need like the government needs to create safety in their people and not fear mongering. Yeah. Um, no, thank you. Th- thank you sorry. for that. I, I, uh, uh, I will give uh, uh, both of you kind of a last word. So if you want to respond, sure. if you want to make other comments, anything we've missed. So, so uh, Henry and then uh, Kalea kind of fi- final word to each of you on, on this whole topic. Thank you again for, uh, for, for being here. So, so Henry, go ahead to you first. So, so, I, I kind of like to think of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies as John the Baptist to the coming of blockchain-based um, systems. And I think Canada, you know, where Canada in general, but specifically in the Ontario region, we are a great ecosystem for blockchain development. I, I don't. I would want listeners of this podcast to understand how privileged a position we are. Right? So I, I think the opportunity, economic opportunity, in the long run, is not necessarily Bitcoin. Bitcoin is a great John the Baptist, again, to the message of blockchain-based technologies that are out there. Um, I, we actually, I just gave a presentation to an auto company uh, for, on, on behalf of the Ministry of Ontario uh, Economic Development. And the story we had to tell, we didn't talk about anything about Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. We talked about opportunities, the, the knowledge base that we have in blockchain-based development. I think that's the message. Simply put, I think Bitcoin, I still think Bitcoin is a story of value. I think it's nice. I think it's shiny. I think there's money to be made in it, but I want you to be circumspect about what it is. We work with the Bank of Canada and we're going to introduce something called central bank digital currencies eventually, which actually will run perfectly comfort what Bitcoin is doing. Bitcoin is great. Know what it is, in my opinion. Know that it's a shiny object and know that the real things that are out there past that shiny object our blockchain technologies and Canada is one of the best places in the world for that. Okay, so uh, uh, optimism mixed with caution from from Henry and Kalea, over to you. Uh, I believe Canada is like one of the top five countries in the world in terms of our development, in terms of our ability to support clean, renewable uh, mining operations, and in terms of what we can do in, ter- uh, in supporting like clear regulatory guidance and framework to create consumer protection in the cryptocurrency space. I would strongly advocate, like to me personally, Bitcoin is the soundest money the world has ever seen. If you want to truly understand what money is and why this is sound money, you know, reading the Bitcoin standard by the PhD professor, uh, Saifuddin Amous, would be a fantastic start to that. It's also an audible, great resource to get into there. I would, I would say that 
everybody should look into it and have a better understanding, understand their current monetary system to understand why Bitcoin is very sound money. And if you're looking for more resources on it, you're welcome to come to our uh, blockchain consortium and be a part of our, our free educational classes on the topic. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, if you share, share those links with my team and we'll, we'll include as much of that as we can in the, in the show notes. Uh, so, uh, so I, I promise both of you the last word, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. And I, I think, I think we did a good job of, uh, having a conversation that will, will probably be interesting to people who, who are already engaged with this space, but it, it, uh, certainly for me as a, as a relative newcomer, and I think for, for people that are less familiar, it will give them a sense of, uh, what's going, really going on here. There's, there's, there's the technology piece, there's the economics piece, and there's also just some of the, the political questions in terms of what this, this means for, for those of us who, who do what I do. So uh, folks, if you've enjoyed this, this podcast episode, uh, I want our listeners to, to know maybe your first time listener who, who just saw this, this episode on social media, uh, I'm doing weekly podcasts on a wide variety of topics. Uh, we talk about uh, Second World War history and its relevance to uh, to geopolitics today. Uh, we talk about uh, about specific issues in Parliament and, and Canadian democracy. I interview other elected uh, politicians from from other parties and from my party from time to time. Uh, and of course, we're tackling uh, big issues of the day, big policy questions uh, like what we talked about today. So uh, you can find resuming debate on any of the major podcast uh, platforms like share subscribe and leave a review thanks so much for listening and we'll be back with another episode in seven days